Our text this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 4. That's 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll be considering especially verses 21 and 22. But for the sake of context, I'll read the whole chapter. First Samuel chapter 4 from verse 1. Take heed to the word of God. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched besides Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army of, in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they may bring forth hence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which, dwelt between, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing there heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues that dwell uh, with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent, for there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel thirty thousand footmen. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. And there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army, and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes rent and with earth upon his head. And when he came, and when he came, lo, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, what meaneth the noise of this tumult? And the man came hastily and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety and eight years old, and his eyes were dim, that he could not see. And the man said to, un, unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army, and fled today out of the army. And he said, What is there done, my son? And the messenger answered and said, Israel is fled before the Philistines, and there hath been also a great slaughter among the people. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. And it came to pass, when he made mention of the ark of God, that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck brake, and he died. For he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. And his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child, near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, that, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast borne a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. 
Israel as a nation and as a church, more importantly, was furnished with many gifts and privileges from the Most High God. Unto them were given the covenants, the promises, the adoption, and the ordinances of God. God set his name upon them, and his glory dwelt in their midst. First of all, as he led them out of the land of Egypt and by a pillar of, of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then in the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies and later in the temple. And so Israel was furnished with the light of the gospel of the Messiah to come. They were set, out, set apart from the world and privileged with access unto God, having the glory of God dwelling in their midst. But if you know Israel's history, then you know, you know that those ordinances that they were privileged with were so often abused. That name by which they were called was so often blasphemed, and that glory that dwelt in their midst was so often spurned. And throughout their history, time and time again, generation to generation, they provoked the Lord that called them. They provoked him to anger, and they provoked him to judgment. As we come to our text, we come to a very sad time in the history of the church of Israel, the history of the church under age. Our text, the book of Samuel, comes at a crossroads in Israel's history. Samuel was the last of the judges after Moses and, and Joshua we have the period of the judges recorded for us in the book of Judges as well as Ruth and here in 1 Samuel. And in this time, this time was marked by that refrain that we find in the book of Judges. This was a time in which there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It was a time of lawlessness. It was a time of iniquity. It was a time of idolatry. It was a time of provoking the Lord to his face. And as we come to the book of 1 Samuel, towards the end of this period of the judges, we see that the church is in a declined state. The church is marred by sin, grievous sin at that these two priests, these sons of Eli that were mentioned, Hophni and Phinehas, these were two sons of Belial, sons of Satan, if you will, as they're described elsewhere in the book. They were priests. They were descendants of Aaron. They were appointed to offer sacrifices and to praise the name of the Lord. But they abused God's ordinances. They were more concerned with feeding themselves with the fat of the sacrifices than with offering them unto the Lord. And not only that, they committed fornication with the women as they came to offer their sacrifices. And they brought great reproach upon the name of the Lord so that men despised his ordinances and thought lightly of his worship. And Eli himself, though he was, he's generally regarded as a godly man, he was too soft in his dealings with his sons. They ought to have been severely disciplined and deposed from the priesthood, but merely a, a word of correction, but no real action did he bring against his sons and all their wickedness. He allowed them to continue. And in the midst of this wickedness in the house of Eli, we see the Lord beginning to raise up Samuel. Samuel. And from his lips, this young child who is living in the house of the Lord, the Lord confirms a prophecy that is going to come upon the house of Eli, that there will not dwell in Eli's house even one old man, that he would come, that the Lord would come into his house and slay each and every man in the house of Eli until they are left desolate for the sin, for the sin that so pervaded among his house. 
As we come to chapter 4, we see the fulfillment of this prophecy. In the previous chapter, the previous chapter ends with the establishment of Samuel as a prophet in the land of Israel, and all Israel beginning to hear him and to regard him as a prophet. And really the first sentence that we see in, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, really belongs to that last section. It, that, that section of chapter 3 at the end where it's speaking of Samuel coming into his ministry, being established as a prophet. We, we ought not to think from the, the first sentence of verse 1 that Israel went out to battle against the Philistines at the behest of Samuel. That's not what it's saying. But they most likely went out against the Philistines in a time of, uh, out of their own presumption. This was a time when the Philistines had dominion over Israel. And so they, they rose up and they went to battle, but immediately we see that the Lord was not with them in their battle, for they were greatly slaughtered. And in the wake of this slaughter, as we come down to our text, we see that not only was the ark of God taken, but these two priests that carried it were slain as well. As we come down to verses 21 and 22, we see Phinehas' wife, who was with child, entering into labor as she, hear, as she hears the distressful news of the, the taking of the ark and the death of her father-in-law and of her husband. And we see the birth of this child, this child born under such circumstances. And she named, verse 21, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory is departed from Israel because the ark was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. Our text is a moment, a moment in the sad history of Israel's rebellion. And it's so sad, not because they lost a battle, not even because the ark was taken, but because the glory of the Lord had departed from their midst. And really the truth is, it had long since departed, even before the ark was taken but they were none the wiser for it because they were so hardened in their sin and blind, blind to their own spiritual declension. But as we come to our text, we see this, this unnamed woman, this wife of Phinehas, bemoaning the state of the church, bemoaning the declension and the departure of the glory, bemoaning the fact that Israel, which ought to have been a light unto the nations, <coughs> is now finding herself under the feet of the Philistines, having the glory of God departed from them. And as we take up this text, we'll see what it's teaching us, is that the miseries that befall the church are more grievous to the souls of the godly than even their own personal afflictions. And that's our theme this morning. The miseries that befall the church are more grievous to the souls of the godly than even their own personal afflictions. And the great misery that we see, again, is not the loss of a battle, the weakening of a military, but it's the, the, the desertion of the church of God. A church deserted by the glory of God. This is the great grief to the godly. And as we look at this text, we'll consider this under three headings. First of all, we will consider the causes of this desertion, the causes of desertion, why it is that the, the glory departed from Israel. Secondly, the marks of the desertion how we can tell when the glory of God has departed from the church. And lastly, lamenting, lamenting the desertion, how we ought to respond as we discern that the church is in a state of desertion. So first of all, the causes of desertion. Why is it that the glory had departed from Israel? As we read earlier in the chapter, we saw that the people, as they went out to battle 
they were immediately facing defeat. And rather than looking upon themselves, examining themselves and, and seeing that, well, it's our sins that are the cause. Our sins are the reasons. For God has said, so long as you walk in my ways, there will no nation be able to stand before you. So long as you keep my statutes, I will be with you. And, there were, and one of you will set to flight thousands. But on the contrary, we see thousands of Israelites being slain. What's the reason? What's the cause? Well, to them, in verse 3, we see that they, they rightly ascertain that this is the hand of the Lord against them. They say, wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Why is God doing this? They're right in that respect, but they err in that they complain against the hand of God. You see, they're not rightly seeing that God is being just in, the, in his dealings with them, but rather they're bringing an accusation, they're bringing an unjust complaint against God's dealings, not realizing that it's because they themselves have so long continued in idolatry, in open rebellion against God, and therefore his blessing is removed from them. And what's the solution? Their solution is not, well, let's corporately repent of our sins, confessing, that we've transgressed God, we've forsaken his covenant, that we need to seek mercy from his hand. No, rather their, their solution is to trust in an ordinance. They say, let us fetch the ark, this is verse three again, let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it might save us out of the hand of our enemies. It's true that the Ark of the Covenant was given as a sign and seal of the presence of God in the midst of the people. That's what it was. It was a kind of sacrament, if you will. But it was utterly foolish of them to think that merely having the outward form, the outward sign and seal, while all the while living in sin would have any positive effect for them. They said the Ark of the Covenant would save us from our enemies. And so we begin to see one of the first signs, one of the first causes of the, the glory of the Lord departing from Israel. They had fallen into religious formalism. They had addicted themselves so much to the ordinances that they had not paid any attention to the God of the ordinances. Yes, God has given us sacraments, signs and seals for the confirmation of our faith, but we're not to trust in these things in and of themselves as though they, as though they act ex opere operato. They act in and of themselves. Religious formalism, thinking and presuming that because we have the formal ordinances of God, God is surely with us at all times, automatically, no matter what. All we have to do is go through the motions, all we have to do is engage in the forms, and they'll surely be effectual to us. Now, at this point, we might be thinking, oh, those foolish Israelites. Of course they would do something like that. We would never. But we can also fall into this trap as well. We can fall into formalism, thinking that the sacraments are automatic in their, in their working towards us. We can come haphazardly to the, to the Lord's table. And think, well, we're a reformed church. I, I believe the, in the objectivity of the covenant. I believe that God has given us uh, these sacraments and therefore they're automatically going to work and, and yet not realize that the sin and, and, and the unbelief in us will render all of these things of none effect. In fact, even sitting under the preaching of the word is of none effect to us if it is not mixed with faith. We read this in the book of Hebrews. So the gospel is preached unto them, the Israelites, as well as unto us, but it profited them nothing, not being mixed with faith in them that hear it. All of the ordinances of God are only effectual insofar as they are received with faith, and all of them are easily rendered null and void, rendered null and void, when they are mixed with hidden or even open, in this case, sins. We cannot think that we can live like the devil Monday through Saturday and then walk into the church and sit in the pew, partake in the ordinances, sit under the word, and these things are going to have an automatic effect upon us. It is a delusion. And so these people 
were deluded in thinking that despite all of their open rebellion against God, despite the fact that from the priest, from the from the priest down to the people, from the least to the greatest, all were marred with iniquities. And yet they went on and on in the ordinances of God as a people that did right. This is one of the causes that brought upon this departure of the glory of the Lord from Israel. And if you go back to the earlier chapters of chapter 2, you see a description of the priests and how they executed their office. They would take the sacrifices, offering them time and time again, and the people would bring them day in and day out. All the while, all the while the priests were acting out of greed, simply so that they could have delectable food to eat. And not only that, they were committing open fornication with the women that came to worship. And so we see how deeply permeated Israel was with with sin from top to bottom. So much sin and yet so much religion. So much sin and yet daily sacrifices are being offered. Again, we might think, well, those Israelites, how could they? But is this us as well? Do we go through the motions of religion? Do we pray before meals? Perhaps do we even conduct family worship? And yet we're walking in sin. We ought to be mindful. We ought to be mindful that we approach unto God as he is really and truly a consuming fire. A consuming fire. You see, the problem with this people and so often the problem with us is that we don't really fear God. We've heard the gospel promises which are so sweet indeed that God freely offers forgiveness through Jesus Christ, remission of sin and reconciliation unto him through the blood of Christ. Yea and amen. But you see, so often the flesh, the flesh will take a, a biblical premise and derive from it an ungodly conclusion. We see that we see the Apostle Paul constantly warring against these ungodly conclusions. Shall we abo- uh, uh, continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But that's our natural inclination to hear of the grace of God and want to continue in sin, to walk in presumption. A presumptuous people is not a people that has godly fear. We're to approach unto God with a godly fear and reverence of his holiness. Yes, we receive of the grace of God that's freely offered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But if we have a real impression upon our souls of the work of Jesus Christ, that drives us all the more to lament for our sins, doesn't it? If we think what great cost was required that we could be purged, that our sins could be forgiven, that the very Son of God, that the very Son of God had to suffer upon a cross, enduring the wrath of his Father, that ought to drive us to hate sin all the more. And in fact, to fear sin and to fear offending not only God as creator and lawgiver, but God as our Redeemer. As we esteem the precious blood of Christ as that which cleanses our soul and redeems us from our sins, that should cause us to fear God and to love Christ all the more and incite us to greater piety, to greater sensibility over our sin. And Christian, if you've walked with the Lord for some time, I I trust that you've known this by experience. I trust that you've as you've grown in your knowledge of the Lord and you've come to know more of, of Christ by experience and, and you might be able to look at your life and actually say that objectively you're sinning less now than you were five or ten years ago and yet you have a, a, a greater weight of your sin impressed upon your soul. That's how it ought to be with us as Christians. And, and that feeling of the weight of our sin doesn't drive us to despair 
but rather drives us drives us to know all the more intimately how sweet, how sweet the Lord Jesus Christ is. Because as we think upon our sins, as we, as we lament over them and we see how wretched we are and how holy God is, and we look at what's been given to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can only rejoice and exult in Christ Jesus that the shedding of his blood was, was the ultimate demonstration of divine love towards us as sinners. This ought to be, this ought to be what marks a religious people. That This ought to be what marks the church of God. But where this is lacking, there is no real fear of God, but there is rather presumption and pride. These are some of the causes of this desertion. And of course, this was, not a one-time instance. You can read through the book of Judges and, and Samuel up to this point, and, and you'll see time and time again that the people provoked the Lord to anger in his wrath until, and he sent them prophets after prophets. He, he, he rose up judges to deliver them from, their, from the judgment that he brought upon them, and yet again and again they were turned back. They were indeed, as the prophet Hosea says, a people bent towards backsliding. And so it was, but, but God in his, in his mercy and his long-suffering, he doesn't immediately, he doesn't immediately dispense with his people. But rather, he's very patient. He sends warning after warning, first verbally through the word of his, through the mouth of his prophets. Then he sends chastenings. Oftentimes, by increasing degrees, but at length, if the people are unrepentant, if they are incorrigible, then God will depart from that people and remove, as it were, their lampstand. And this is another cause of the departure of the glory of God from the midst of his church, incorrigibleness under divine chastening. That is, an, an hardened and unrepentant heart, even though the Lord has rebuked, even though the Lord has chastened, and yet there's still no real repentance. Then finally, and at last, the Lord will depart from such a people. And so this people, they were formal in their religion. They lacked the fear of God, and yet... They were incorrigible. They did not repent, even under the chastening hand of God. And so, and so that is what led to these events, led to them going into the battle by their own strength, not being accompanied by God and His strengthening hand. These these are the causes of this desertion of the church at this time. Their desertion by the glory of God. But what are the marks whereby we might discern that a church has in fact been deserted by the glory of God? How can we, as we take up this text and hold it up as a mirror to examine ourselves, what marks are we to look for to discern whether in fact we, like Israel of old, have become a church from whom the glory of God is departed? We don't want to wait until he's given some undeniable sign, like this people, that he's departed from them, because really they should have known long before the ark was taken, that God's glory had departed. But yet they didn't. And so what are some of these marks whereby we might discern so that we can rightly examine ourselves? Well, think, first of all, to the promises that the Lord made unto Israel. How he promised to dwell in their midst to give them strength, that they be a light unto the nations. 
that he would adorn them with holiness, make the ordinances effectual unto their salvation and, and sanctification. And yet all these things were lacking. They could look back, perhaps, on former generations of greater piety, of greater nearness unto God, and see the difference between themselves and past generations. How that generation that came out of Egypt, how the Lord delighted in them, and how they were like a young, a young woman who's at first adorned in, adorned in her beauty for her wedding day and comes with great joy and, and comes to her husband to be, to be wed unto him. And they have that honeymoon phase, but as the years go by, as the years go by, she betrays her husband. We see this imagery used in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16 where the church is described as, as this infant child, this baby girl left in the mud, umbilical cord, cord uncut, covered in, in dirt and blood. And the Lord passes by and cleans her up and washes her with water. And she grows up. She grows up until the time of love is upon her. And then she's married unto the Lord. She joins into a covenant with him and he spreads his skirt over her and he puts his beauty upon her and she became his. But not long after, she turned aside and played the whore against her husband and went after other gods. And she trusted in her own beauty as though it was really her own and not something she received from her Lord. And so one of the marks of a church in decline, of a church under spiritual desertion, is a forsaking, a forsaking of her former commitments and attainments in the things of God. A church that once was zealous for the worship of God, a church that once even a church that once even made a covenant with her God to walk in all his ways. You recall what the people said in Exodus, all that the Lord has said we will do. And they owned him for their God and committed to walk in his ways. But as the generations went by, those covenants were forgotten. Those commitments were forsaken. This is a mark of a church in decline, a church deserted. You see, God is a God that deals corporately with his people. We see this in our text. We see this in the prophecies against the house of Eli. The house of Eli as a corporate entity has, was sinning against the Lord. The, the sins of the sons, not only them, but also the sin of the father in not restraining his sons. And so the Lord brought a corporate judgment upon that whole house. And of course, we see in our text a, a national judgment being brought upon the whole people, the whole nation. God is a God that deals not only with individuals, but also with corporate bodies. And so when a corporate body enters into a covenant with the Lord, that's something that's very serious. That's something that God holds his people to, and all peoples to. Covenant commitments are not to be forgotten. You, you see this, for example, with Joshua and the Gibeonites. Joshua made a covenant with them. He made a covenant with them. And many generations and centuries later, God is judging Israel because King Saul had violated that covenant. And the judgment would not be abated until David made atonement and there was corporate repentance for the breach of that covenant which stood the obligations descended upon each following generation 
so that we clearly see that the covenant commitments of a corporate body oblige descending generations. And so to ignore those things and to disregard them, to pay no mind to them, is to be a people, a people nigh unto being bereft of the glory of God, a people close to being deserted if they are not deserted already. And so the question that we must ask ourselves, are, are we, like Israel, forsaking our covenant commitments? Are we, like Israel, forgetting our covenant commitments? Well, if you're members of this congregation, you've taken a covenant of communicant membership, haven't you? And you've solemnly sworn in the name of Jehovah to keep those things, to keep those vows. You've vowed to diligently read the scriptures, for example. That's a very serious thing to take such a vow publicly in the house of God. How often are you thinking about the commitments that you have voluntarily made in the name of God as a covenant, all this congregation bearing witness to it? How often are you mindful of the duties that you've covenanted unto to faithfully attend the worship services, to give unto the Lord as he prospers you, to diligently read the scriptures You ought to often think of these things and lament any breach of these commitments. Be mindful of the covenant. But as we've said, it's not only the covenant that you have personally entered into that binds you. The covenants also of any corporate body of which you remember bind you as well. Just as the covenant made in the days of Moses, bound this generation, just as the covenant made in the days of Joshua bound Saul and David as well, so the covenants, for example, entered into by the Reformed Presbyterian Church, bind its present members as well. Are you mindful of these things? If you're not aware of those, then look into them. Your pastor will tell you. And think of them. And, and as we look upon our church and, and we think about her present state, we ought not to be so nearsighted that we think only of the things that have transpired in the last few years. Because with us may be the case that was with Israel as well that the troubles upon the church were not only for present sins, but also, also due to covenants that had long since been forgotten. And so we ought to look into these things and examine ourselves to see whether we're faithful to our covenants. And of course, the things that we've said previously under the previous heading, we ought to examine ourselves as well. Are we formal in our religion? Do we lack the fear of God? If so be, then we ought to take these things more seriously, that we ought to be those that are committed not only to outward forms of religion, but to the heart of religion especially. We can say, oh, well, wait a second, we're reformed. We've got the worship of God all prim and proper. We sing only the Psalms. We read only the scriptures. But the question is not only about the form. The form is important. But it is possible, it's quite possible to have a form of godliness and lack the power thereof. And so as you come under the word of God, as you come under its preaching and its reading, even as you sing the Psalms, the question is not merely do you have the form right, but the question is are these things sinking down into your soul and into your heart and bringing a deep impression of the glory of God 
and inciting your soul to greater faith and a desire for obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the question. Are we formal? Are we cold? The truth is oftentimes we are. That's our human corrupt nature. We fall into a routine of religion. We come into the house of God haphazardly, distracted. We're absent-minded during the preaching. Our, our thoughts are on other things as we sing the Psalms. We're thinking about our troubles of yesterday and our concerns for tomorrow as we partake in the sacraments. That's our nature. We've all fallen into this. The question is, are we mindful of it and are we going to the throne of grace, lamenting our sins and seeking fresh grace from the Lord Jesus Christ to sanctify us of these things, to purge us of dead works and to conform us more and more into his image? That's the question for us as we take up this text. It's quite clear that this woman, Phinehas, Phinehas's wife, was quite a miserable woman. But yet she seems to have been a godly woman, despite the fact that her husband was a wicked priest. And think about this woman's state for a moment as we come to her words, which are quite striking. Not only had she now suffered the death of her father-in-law and of her husband, but for many years, she had dealt with the open adultery of her husband who ought to have been an example of godliness and piety unto Israel. And perhaps, in fact, this is the reason why she seems to be godly. You see, I say that she's godly because as, as she hears of the news, her first concern is for the ark of God and the glory of God, not so much with the troubles that have happened to her. And so it is oftentimes the case that those that are the, more, the most afflicted are those that dwell the nearest unto God. In fact, it's oftentimes the case that even as individual believers, we're nearest unto God when we're most under afflictions. And in fact, times of prosperity bring times of sin. In fact, you see this in the life of David himself, the man after God's own heart. The first part of his life, he was concerned most of all with being afflicted by Saul. He was on the run, hiding in caves, having his father-in-law trying to kill him, his king trying to slay him. And yet through all these things, he was very near unto God. And we have some of the sweetest psalms reflecting that piety in his life during these times. But what happened when he ascended the throne? Saul is dead. Now he is the king. He's being, he's pro, he has prosper, prosperity in his, in his wars. What happened? Committed adultery and murder. So it is the case that oftentimes we're nearest unto God when afflictions are the heaviest. And so it seems perhaps that this was the case with this woman, Phinehas' wife, who was with child and near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken and her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed. The news of this horrible judgment that was coming upon the people of God had such an effect on her that she immediately went into labor. And as she has a son, her son, which ordinarily, the birth of a son, which ordinarily would be a time of rejoicing, is turned into an occasion of lament. And she names the child according to the lamentation that is upon her. So we come to our third point concerning lamenting this desertion. Verse 21, and she named the child Ichabod. You'll notice throughout the scriptures that it was a custom of the Jews, the custom of the Hebrews, to name their children according to God's providences. You see Moses and, and Joseph doing that as they dwell in Egypt, according to God's dealing with them. 
And so we see this woman following that same custom. She named the child Ichabod, which means where is the glory, or as our text has it, the glory is departed. For the glory had departed from Israel, and she saw it clearly and undeniably with this defeat of their army and the taking of the ark. And yes, that ark really was a sign and seal of God's presence among his people. And since they had so addicted themselves merely to the outward form of it, in order to show them what was really happening in their midst, he had to physically take it away so they wake up and see that God has forsaken them, so to speak, because of their sins. Isaiah 59 tells us that sin separates us from God. And so it was the case with this people. Their sins had separated them from their God. And this woman, seeing the sad case of her church and of her nation, bemoans and falls into a deep despair, a deep grief that she even dies because of it. She laments the desertion of her nation and of her church as marked by the taking of the ark. And she names the child Ichabod. A sad and tragic name indeed. But it was already the case that this child was to have a sad and tragic life. For the prophecy was there will, no, there will be no old men in the house of Eli. This child because of the sins of his father, the corporate sins of his household, was already destined to fall under that hand of judgment from God. And so rightly, this woman lamenting the case of her house, of her family, of her nation, and of her church, is in a deep lamentation as she names this child Ichabod. The glory is departed from Israel. The psalmist in Psalm 137, written at a time when, it, when Judah had been taken captive by Babylon, he says, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, this is a man lamenting, lamenting by the rivers of Babylon and thinking about Jerusalem, the place where God had set his name the place where the worship of God was observed, where the temple had been. The man, as he's, the man as he's lamenting the state of the church, now captive in Babylon, he says, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I forget thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. The psalmist in Psalm 137, and Phineas's wife here in our text were more deeply impressed by the miseries of the church than even their own interests, than even their own personal sufferings. And so it ought to be with all those that are godly. And I say that because the first table of the law is first indeed. We're to love God first of all, and then secondly, to love man. And so we should have a greater concern for the glory of God and the welfare of his church than even our own interests. This is why when our Lord taught us to pray, what's the first thing that we're to pray for? That the name of God be hallowed, that his will be done, that his kingdom come. The things of God are to come first, and so we are to orient our hearts, orient our minds, so that we esteem the things of God more important than even the affairs of our own lives. And as we hear this, we've got to pause for a second and think about our own prayers. The Lord has clearly instructed us with a form of how to pray and how the things of God are to be ordered first and yet, as we reflect, we see that oftentimes, if not most of the time, our prayers are concerned, first of all, with temporal things. First of all, with the cares of this life. Perhaps that's all we really pray about. 
But Christian, your mind ought to be so occupied with the glory of God and with his will and with his kingdom that that occupies your thoughts and occupies your prayers even more than your own concerns. You ought to bemoan the ill health health of your church even than your own physical ill health. And so we have the example of this woman who bemoaned, first of all, the glory departing from Israel before she was even concerned, before she was even concerned with the things that have befallen herself. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. As we look upon the church of Jesus Christ in our, in our age and look beyond only the bounds of our little denomination, our little branch of the visible church, and think about the church of Christ in this land across the world, and we think of its sad state, its sad and pathetic state, really that's what it is, where the inventions of men are offered perpetually, false doctrines, false worship, tyrannical head pastors of megachurches. Think, for example, of, of, of the Reformed churches of old. The Church of Scotland, which once had such great luminaries, godly pastors that came forth to proclaim the truth unto the people and to lead God's people into the way of truth. Now look at that nation. Look at that national church. Now ordaining homosexuals to the ministry. And the reformed remnant is a, a meager cluster of, the uh, of congregations scattered here and there. While the bulk of the nation has abandoned the Lord and the established church is provoking the Lord continually to this day. As we think upon these things, as we look out into our neighborhoods and we see that mainline churches have forsaken the gospel, have embraced perversion and all manner of false teaching and false worship, these things ought to deeply grieve us. We ought to often lament before the Lord because of the state of the church. How often, friend, how often have you gone to your prayer closet, tears in your eyes, moans upon your breath because of the state of the visible church on earth in this day. It ought to be something that deeply impresses our souls and drives us to pray, drives us to lament because we're concerned with the glory of God and the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. And we desire, we desire to see Christ rightly acknowledged as the only king and head of his church and on the inheritor of all nations. We ought to lament, lament with the psalmist, lament with Phineas' wife over the state of the church in our day. And if we can't see it, if we can't see just what a dire state it is in by and large, then perhaps like Israel, perhaps like Israel, we've fallen into a state of spiritual slumber and we need to wake out of sleep at once. We ought to lament, and that lamentation ought to drive us not merely to, to complain, but especially, especially it ought to drive us to pour out our souls before the Lord, that we would see his churches filled with sinners turning, turning from their wicked ways, that we would see his son, Jesus Christ, getting the inheritance that was promised to him in Psalm 2, the nations coming unto him, that we would see the Great Commission being filled, that all these people in these homes would come in droves to this place to hear the word of God proclaimed, that they would turn off their TVs and stop going to their markets and come and worship the God that has made them and has sent his son to offer salvation to them. If we're not seeing this, we ought to be moved, our hearts ought to be broken that Jesus Christ is not being honored in our nation. 
We ought to lament the sad state of the church. And we ought to, it ought to not only incite us to prayer, but also incite us to action. Incite us to go and proclaim on every street corner that Jesus Christ is king, that he has come and the Lord has set his king on Zion and all nations and every person in the city to, is obligated to submit themselves to Jesus Christ. We ought to be deeply impressed with the glory of God and the prerogative of King Jesus Christ. That as we see our neighbors walking in darkness and in ignorance, we cannot but pray for them. And we cannot proclaim, but we cannot do anything other than proclaim the good news unto them. Putting aside whether they think we're a religious freak or not. We're not concerned about that. We're concerned about the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we ought to deeply lament, deeply lament the lack, the lack of worship that prevails in the world or even in our own neighborhood. The lack of, of converting power that ought to accompany gospel preaching and we ought to desperately seek the Lord's hand for it. And we do so not out of a blind hope, but based on solid gospel promises. For that inheritance that's held out to Jesus Christ is surely going to be his indeed. The nations will come unto him. And as we'll see in our text for this afternoon, the Lord himself has promised to raise up gospel preachers and to draw the nations unto himself. And so we have a solid hope, we have a solid basis to go out as we lament the state of the church and desiring petition, petitioning God to adorn his church once more with the glory of holiness and adorn it with the souls of men. We have a solid hope and basis for our practice and for our prayers. And so as we think and we meditate upon this sad history of Israel, we do so not to drive ourselves merely to despair, but to incite ourselves, to incite ourselves to prayer and to action. That we would plead with God that he would bring a remedy and we would act trusting in him that he's promised that he will. And so indeed, we ought to lament, but we lament not as those that have no hope, but we lament as those whose hope is grounded in Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy. And so as we think upon these things, let us be moved to pray, to pour out our complaint unto the Lord and to trust in him, to adorn his church once more with the glory of holiness and to accompany the preaching of the gospel and the witness of the church with the converting of sinners so that God in every corner of the earth might be worshipped and that his son, that his son might be acknowledged as king over all the earth. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you acknowledging, acknowledging that in our flesh our hearts are so cold and calloused that we oftentimes fall into formality of religion, that like Jeremiah says, it is true of us that as we look upon this, the state of the church, it's nothing to us as we pass by. But we ask, O oh God, that you deeply impress upon our hearts deeply impress upon our hearts a desire for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom and the doing of your will in the earth so that we might rightly feel, feel the lamentation that we ought to as we see, as we see the sad state of our nation, of our church. And that, oh God, by your Holy Spirit, you would impress upon us and incite us to pray, to be a praying people, a pleading people, and that you, O oh God, would also give us faith, faith that indeed you will answer, 
faith that indeed you will draw the nations unto yourself and glorify yourself in the earth and give the nations, give the peoples unto your son as his inheritance. Father, forgive us of our sins and lead us in the way that we should go. Write your word upon our hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in our lives by the ministration of your Holy Spirit that our, that our lamentations, that our tears might be turned into joy and turned into laughter. Turn us again, O God, and we shall be saved. In Christ's name we pray.